Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Spark Hub podcast. My name is Alan, and in this episode, we speak to Martin Patterson, who runs a company called Hands On History. And Hands On History does what it says on the tin. It gives people the ability to touch history. As you listen to this podcast, you'll hear how the idea began. But if we cast forward to present day and future, essentially, Hands On History goes to schools, particularly primary schools, and brings artifacts from everything from the Bronze Age up to World War II, and arranges for classes and teachers to, well, basically touch history, touch artifacts, act certain things out, bring history to life. And it's performing so well that it just keeps growing, and Martin is a very busy man. He also has plans for the future, because there's only so many hours in a day and so many schools you can reach within a certain radius. So without further ado... Let's get into the episode, but just one quick note. As always, there's links to everything hands-on history in the show notes below. And now, enjoy this interview with Martin Patterson and how he brings hands-on history. So Martin, welcome to Spark Hub Podcast. And as is tradition, what is, uh, could you open with a quote, please, about history? I suppose it's about our name. We're called hands-on history because that's what we do. We get our hands really dirty into in in into history perfect well i tell you what let's start with the origin story so how did it how did this idea of creating a a bit a business around putting your hands on history even occur to you by chance by we were asked by a woodworking show to uh, provide something to publicize the event and it's a bit it was a big show and they rang me up because the and said, you've always wanted to build a trebuchet, a medieval siege, siege catapult. Uh, do you fancy doing that for us? And they paid us the money, and we built the trebuchet, and we fired missiles, and it worked really well. Lots of TV came down and filmed it. Um, and then they said, can you bring it along to the show, please? And we said, yeah. Can you shoot it every hour on the air? We said, yeah, no problems at all. Uh, and they said, because people come and watch, and can you tell them a bit about the trebuchet? And I thought, yeah, yeah we can do that. And we got a school's day on Friday. Yes, okay, fine. Um, and I thought, well, just shooting a trebuchet, it only takes a couple of minutes to explain about it, isn't, not, isn't very interesting. So what I actually did is I borrowed a suit of armour from someone and on the I'd pick someone out from the audience, someone watching, and I would dress them up in the armour and talk about the whole experience of being put into armour and, and, and what it was like to kind of fight in this armour. And on the school day, at the end of the school day, we'd had 30, over 30 inquiries from school. So could you come into our school, please? So that all, that all came off of one event. This created a pipeline of demand. Yes, absolutely. And so I looked into it a bit more. And yeah, there were people called reenactors who were going into school in costumes. But no one was actually kind of looking at the curriculum and, 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 and working from the, what the schools need to produce a really good history day. So that's what we did. And we started basically with Saxons, Vikings, Normans, uh, and, and Romans. And then it, we, since then, we've spread from everything from the Stone Age right up to Second World War. Well, in fact, I could say beyond Second World War, up to the Cold War, because we're occasionally doing secondary schools. But let me ask another question. If, if, if Clearly, you had a talent as a carpenter that people saw, and it, it led to things, but the knowledge of history has always been something you've been into for a while. Has that been because of where you were raised or how you were raised? Like, what is it, what has history done from the literary sense for you? I suppose the thing is, I always feel that we are what we were. 
And so you can't just look at us as we are now. It, you know, my past includes the Cold War. I go into schools, secondary schools, and talk about the Cold War's so history. But to me, that's not history. That's my past. I always think about history as a bit like the onion. We're the skin on the outside, the unappetizing bit. It's the layers underneath that gives it us that flavor. And that's why I've always had a passion. I'm always fascinated how, not so much how the kings and, and things happen, but how ordinary people live their lives and how differently they thought to how we think today. Yeah, definitely. And, and so you took the knowledge you had and the fascination and a passion. You added the physical element, which was the building of, of physical 3D objects. And now you're in yeah. schools. What type, what type of age groups are you showing stuff to? We are, are predominantly it's primary school, uh, and uh, and in primary schools we do a lot with all all the different year groups. But, but the main year group is is key stage two, so that's year three to year six. We do an awful lot with them, um, but we do work with very little people as well. So and we work with uh, secondary schools as well. So what's interesting for us is not only might you be doing a different time period each day but you're doing it with a different age group at a different school. So every day is like a new day. All right. So talk us through what a hands-on history uh, demo is like. So if I'm sitting in a classroom, I'm a primary school student, you walk in the room, take me from there. What, what happens? What do I see? Well, the first and most important thing is we don't turn up in costume. We actually dress up the kids and the, and the teachers, which is uh, much more popular. Um, we, what we always start with is we get the kids to help us to roll out a physical timeline from today back to the beginning of the period they're covering. And we do that because uh, so many of them are confused about when the Romans were and when the Victorians were. They quite often seem to think they're about the same sort of period. So that physical timeline, and then not only are they holding the timeline for us, but they're also, we've got objects and like helmets and hats and coats and, and uh, things that they can hold to represent different things on the timeline. So it's a very involving thing. And if we normally have, by the end of it, about at least 30 children either holding the timeline or with objects on, and it, and it gets that works really well. It gets them putting things into context. And then we go straight into dressing up the teachers, which I absolutely love. You know, putting the teachers into an embarrassing costume, it's, they think it's fantastic. But while we're, every time we do that, every object that comes out, before it's put on the teacher, we get one of the kids come up and model it first, and then it goes on the teacher. And it works really well. And then what we tend to do, that will take us up to break time. After break, we have real activities that they can do. Uh, to give you an idea, one of our very popular ones is we have a what's my job. They have to play the role of archaeologists and there are boxes and each box is numbered and they have a list of jobs and they have to match the objects with the jobs and explain why they think they that, that those objects go into that box and then the really popular one we do, we do shield wall training we have this fantastic little british company that recycles car bumpers to make shields and we have foam swords and they have to form a shield wall and advance and attack the teachers who throw leather covered foam balls back at them and I'd say, well, everybody loves that. Teachers, are, I think, almost more than the children. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. And, and really then, we're 
busy then doing activities or, or, or presentation. We never have them sitting on their bums for a presentation longer than half an hour. They're either, and they're, because then they're up doing stuff. Um, and, um, and they really love those activities that they can get into and look at and do things or make things. You know, when we do World War II, we've come up with a set of templates and they can make a card gas mask for themselves. And once they've made it, we take them outside and we've got an air raid siren and we sound the air raid siren and they've got to put their gas masks on and, and run for the shelter, etc. And they, that they absolutely love as well. So that's the sort of thing we do. It's very hands-on, but it's, we, it works really well for the schools because we've researched what they need from the curriculum so that we can tick a lot of boxes we can tick the boxes of history, but we can also, there's normally maths built into it. There's writing, there's reading, there's um, uh, having to kind of work things out. All those things that are required on the curriculum, we try and build in so that they, they're getting more than just history out of it. That's amazing. And it, it, I mean, it covers so many, parts, as you say, parts of the curriculum. So it sounds like a dream scenario for a teacher. But... What I mean, one quick question. It sounds like everyone gets something out of it, but have you ever traumatized any students or teachers or had to talk them down from a, a well, stressful one, moment? One thing that we do do, and we do uh, quite a lot of history of medicine as part of our subjects. And part of that, we have an operating table with a hole in it where your lower left leg goes in. And then we have a really realistic left leg, which is injured, which we then cut off. And you'll be you would think that lots of children would pass out and faint and, and have to leave the room with this. They don't mind it. They think it's absolutely fantastic. They're used to horrible history, so they think this is fantastic. We've had a head teacher whose legs were, leg we were cutting off, and he nearly passed out on the table. Um, and he said it was the most strange sensation because although he knew his real leg was under the table, a part of his brain deep down thought it thought that he was having his leg cut off and didn't like it at all. So how did you deal with that? Like, if somebody was is, is traumatized, do you have to talk them out of it, or did he kind of snap I, out of it? He or? was all right. He, he lasted up until the end, and then once his his real leg appeared, he was absolutely fine then. Yeah, we actually have white pipe for the bone. I think that was what the bit that finished him off as we were sawing through that. So it's hyper realistic. It's very realistic. And as I said, the children are absolutely fascinated. We same with mummification. We have this model figure, and we've made up all very realistic intestines. And they come out and help us take all the intestines up for, for mummification. And to you know, for an adult, you'd be you might be horrified by it, but the children absolutely love it. The more kind of gory it is, sometimes the, the better it is. And I think, and as I said, I blame Horrible Histories for that. And for those that don't know what Horrible Histories is, that's a series on the BBC, isn't it? Yeah, and books as well, I believe. Yeah, and it's a, you know, it's a really good. And the schools always are running that. Again, they're doing the same thing. They're entertaining the children, but they are uh, educating them as well. Do you find a lot of children now their their reference to history is either through a boring textbook or through something like a hands-on, uh, sorry, Horrible Histories that they may watch in a classroom or via BBC. And so this is almost the third element of it. It's, it's getting it in 3D and, and yeah. getting them to get their hands on. Yeah. Uh, and, and so what, they, they don't come in with any preconceptions, I guess. They come in with their own version. You kind of bring their classroom to life. And it sounds like yes. it's a much, 
a much more wonderful way to do it. A lot of schools have been going out. And of course, nowadays with the cost of living crisis and the, and the cost of energy crisis, the cost of hiring a coach is, is horrific money now. But a lot of schools are now discovering that if they go out, uh, by the time that they get to where they're going and then get off the coach and then all the kids need to go to the loo, quite often they're going to a venue where historic venue where there's loads of other schools there. They might get 20 minutes with someone from that, from that site. And then but within a half an hour after lunch, they're back on the coach having to get back to the school. And so they, get, they don't get a lot out of it. When we go in and we can cater up to five classes in a year group and, and have them all busy during the day, um, we start at nine o'clock when the school day starts and finish at three o'clock when the, or whatever it is, when the school day ends. And, they, and the children will be busy for the whole of that day. So the teachers think it's far better value um, than, it, than us than them going out to a venue. Uh, well, I can see it'd be much better value. I mean, just to, you know, in terms of hours and whatnot. Now, I suppose one question I do have, because it's very topical, with the cost of living rising, I've seen on the news lately, a lot of schools, now I'll, I'll back up a second, even before the cost of living crisis, schools are always trimming budgets, specifically around music, arts, that type of thing. And now that there's a cost of living, it, it seems that they're gonna have to cut the budgets even lower. But it seems they get value for money out of hands-on history. So have you seen that the cost of living crisis is affecting your business specifically, or are you kind of busier yes. than ever? Yeah, actually, it's making our business more busy, busier because most of the schools actually uh, go to the parents for funding for outings or having people like us in. We, c we can keep our costs about half what it will cost them to go out, to hire a coach and to pay to go into the venue. And so it's costing, when they're asking for contributions from the parents, the parents aren't having to make such a big contribution. And also, uh, we're getting a lot of feedback from the schools, because uh, they're getting feedback from the parents who say they, are they prefer paying for something like us coming in because they feel they get, the children are getting more value out of it. Okay. Where, do you build, where do you build all your hands-on history physical items? Where do you get them? How do you create them? There are some of them, there are specialist companies that produce stuff. But a lot of the stuff we make ourselves because I uh, work in wood, leather, metals and cloth. And so we've got workshops in for all those things. And so a lot of the stuff we make in-house. And I like that because we can uh, reverse engineer an object. We look at how at something and we then try and work out how they made it and then copy how they made it. And it gives us a real insight into how things were made. And then we use those things specifically. We've already worked out what we want for that particular time period, so for each activity. And so we're very kind of uh, focused on producing what, something that is for that, uh, that kind of activity, so. So you're hands-on in the supply chain as well. Very much so. In fact, one of our uh, quite busy sides of our businesses is supplying... Uh, what we call topic boxes or resource boxes to our museum education departments. We do a lot of those. Were you affected at all by the supply chain issues that have kind of wreaked havoc around the world? Did any of your objects dry up or did you just have to make them in your own workshop? To be honest, we have a good stock of all the raw materials we need. So actually, no, actually, uh, we, as we were making stuff, it didn't affect us. I think if we'd 
you know, if we started to run out, say, of some of the metal sheeting, we would have had a problem. But we always keep a large stock in. How how far would you travel? Like, what is the furthest you've ever traveled in distance-wise from where you are? And just for everyone's benefit, you're in the southeast of the yeah. UK. Yeah, well, in well, yeah, right. Slap back in the middle of East Sussex. In the past, I've traveled up to places like Hull but, uh, and Oxford, but we don't do that anymore. Um, uh, we, we basically try, uh, try and stay within an hour's journey from our base in East Sussex. And the reason we do that is because... There are, we, we're getting there's so much demand at the moment that for every booking that we accept, we have to turn away at least two other bookings because the schools are now really looking for what we do. Um, we don't, we're only a small company and we, we're growing very, very slowly because we don't want to lose that personal touch um, uh, the, the, that we've got, that kind of we're very much hands-on to this business and the people that work for, with us are also very hands-on and very involved in the business as well. So we don't want to just push the, the company bigger and bigger and bigger and lose all that. Well, no, you don't want to become a franchise because frankly, you can't. A lot of your intellectual property is not only you, but the products you make and I can completely yeah. understand why you want to do it. And to be fair, if you're, you know, you're, you've got a decent demand, why would you? Why, why? Why try to break it? Exactly. You know, it's it's a it's a difficult one because I feel sorry for the schools that want, uh, are, you know, trying to book us. In fact, we're st we're getting bookings for the next academic year, starting September two thousand and twenty-three. Um, schools booking way ahead of time for us so that they can get their their slots in early. And how do you think the word of mouth is working? Do you think teachers are talking to other teachers or parents are talking to other parents? Because I doubt you do any advertising. It just seems like it's all word of mouth. We have, we have a website. We have a Facebook page. Um, uh, and that's about it, really. And yeah, a lot of it's word of mouth. Quite often, uh, a teacher will move from a school we've been to and to another school and, and promote us. We will then come into that school and then other teachers from other year groups will see what we do. And normally if we go in the staff room at lunchtime we're being quizzed about what we do for different time periods and then you'll get a batch of bookings from that school and they will continue doing that year on year on that's great and so now you've got this busy time you've clearly got a nice word of mouth uh you've got a, a, a something that that is you don't want to scale too quickly but what happened to hands-on history during covid and lockdown what talk us through Leading up to that, how things were going, and then suddenly, what happened when we were all told yeah, to stay indoors? It was interesting. We were re we were um, very busy to schools, and then literally uh, almost overnight, that stopped. All the school bookings were cancelled. Everybody was in lockdown. Um, but we, what we did, I did basically is we went back to an idea that we've had for a long time, and that's producing resource boxes, or as we call them, topic boxes. Uh, and we thought, right, we want to produce us a really good box of, of items. Our, our school's lead is an ex-teacher, uh, very, very committed history teacher, very good, very committed. And he produced all the contents and the activities to go with the objects in the boxes, including online stuff that, uh, that the schools could download as well. And then to cope with COVID, what we did is we we took the government guidelines and we used a 72-hour sterilization process. So basically, the box, we would um, check it all over and then seal it with a date and time tag on it. 
and then it would go off to the school and the school could then see what t date and time we sealed it and then they could leave it like sealed for 72 hours before they opened it and that worked oh, very wow. well indeed um, and that actually worked because schools were always open for the kind of key children um and then the children at home this is why we did a lot of online content to link in with the boxes as well so the teachers could use the resources with the online content for the, the children that were working from home and that worked well and also museums got money so they were contacting us and saying we want resource boxes as well please can you make this or that so we were kept quite busy during covid yeah and and now that it's opened back up you're sort of reverting back to the going into physical we still know we're still doing the topic boxes they're they are almost as busy as the um uh, as going into schools uh the great advantage of them is uh they can go out if a school wants us they can't get us they often go for a topic box and other schools because the topic box they can have it for two weeks slots as many as they want that some schools really like them because it gives them a set of resources for the whole time they're doing that uh, history period so on that side of the business, that's scalable, I imagine, because it's just production, isn't it? It's not. A yeah, that's of your time. scalable. These are bigger boxes which we deliver, but we are actually working on another idea at the moment, which is a smaller box um, that goes with a cartoon storybook that I'm drawing up, uh, based around a character called Calamity Clem that uh, has a time machine in his pocket and his pocket watch a friend's made him and he goes back into different times of periods of history and causes havoc such as he goes back to the battle of hastings and he trips over one of the norman archers and the arrow goes up in the air very high and comes down and goes into king harold's eye and, and that we end up under the normans and that's what we're working on at the moment so that would be a much smaller resource box linked to this book idea of artists kind of and and we're, we're just sketching it out with one time period at the moment to see how well it will work and what the reaction from teachers is going to be like. And imagining if you that you do get a good reaction is then then you'd have to be on the hook for producing the next, uh, I guess, few iterations yeah. of that. Isn't it? Yeah, that's what, I, what I'd be looking for then is maybe an outside investors to come in and work with us. I can do a lot of the basic sketching, but we need a, a graphic, graphic artist and other bits and pieces. But that's, as I said, we're just we're modeling it at the moment to see what the reaction is. But that's something is, that would be very scalable because the, uh, the boxes to go with the book would be small enough that they could go out in the postal system without it costing too much. Exactly. So the future for hands-on history, it sounds like you have a, a fixed portion of your business, which is your time going to schools. And, and it's fascinating and seems like there's huge demand for it. You're clearly working on some I guess, variable versions of your business so that if you can get content out there in the form that you want. Have you ever considered um, animation or video production? Because I just had a conversation with another uh, history um, outfit that does a podcast called Rex. There's someone I, I actually know. I interviewed them. And what happened to them is they started producing audio podcasts about specific characters in history. And then they had someone come in and animate them, turn them into mm -hmm. little animated videos. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around that. Could hands-on history exist in animated format, audio format? It seems like there's just so many different ways you could take this. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I do think uh, going into school, all, lots of different schools, we see how they do things. And one of the things that interests me, yeah, animation is good. You know, quite often when we go in, the kids, are, uh, if they've got a time, they might be watching something like Horrible Histories on the on the 
on an overhead projector. But a lot of schools, the kids are actually sitting down reading a book because to them, that the schools, that is still a very important thing for them to do. So there are, as you say, there's a lot of other people looking to kind of animate stuff and, and do stuff. I'm still quite keen on the old-fashioned book linked to online content and linked to a small to a, a, a resource a small resource box um, because um, if you're selling schools books, you're not selling them just access to one thing. You're selling them maybe 100, 200 books they're going to buy, uh, maybe with a resource box which they'll keep and hold with it. Um, I think that's in some ways a good marketplace. As I said, we're always interested. We talk every kind of school we go to. We talk to the teachers and we watch to see what the children are doing. And is, they've always, every history period, they have a book that they read with that. And it would be quite nice if our books were part of that process. So it's great because that's a companion strategy, as you say. There's a physical linkable object that's a companion, but within yeah. that, it unlocks other yeah. content. One of my other guests on Spark Hub was a teacher who traveled around the world and taught in many different classrooms. And the question I asked her was, what have you observed in terms of the learning materials? So if kids are now binging on YouTube like mine are, and by the way, that's not a bad thing because they're binging on science videos and stuff. Where, how does tech and analog work in a classroom? And she had a fascinating answer. She said that the kids definitely are digital natives and they do use iPads, but if they can be taught to write and draw, they get a whole different experience and they remember things better when they're able to commit them to paper or use what they would call old-fashioned ways of doing things. It strikes me hands-on history might, you know, be in the same vein. But what have you observed in the past five years going to classrooms? Have you observed digitization of classrooms? Have you observed less books? Because it seems to me you're watching the classroom in order to think about how hands-on history plugs into what the teachers actually need. At, at the primary level... I'm not seeing a lot of change. There's still that heavy emphasis on writing and reading. From a, from, um, you know, a lot of our activities, there is a, quite a bit of uh, writing and interpretation to do. And the teachers really like that. They say it's very important that the children learn that physical dexterity where they can actually pick up a pen or a pencil and produce uh, letters and words which are legible. It's um, a great skill that they need to learn, which you don't get by using the, uh, the digital content. Well, I can give you an example where in my world, where I'm working in boardrooms or in, uh, with investors, there's nothing like being able to stand up and draw on a board and animate something in person. And it's a skill that seems to be disappearing because most people now do it digitally or they don't, they don't use it. And it feels to me like schools are reinvesting in that, saying in the future regardless of what career you're going into, you have to know how to use physical objects. You have to know how to paint a picture. You have to know how to transfer belief from one mind to another. And it, it sounds to me like what you're proposing here with companion type content. So content that's physical that leads to digital seems to marry both those worlds very well. Um, and I would say it hits that, that objective in many ways. And an example, cause we don't know, I think we also, we go into museums and, and, and put on uh, 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 kind of displays as well. We work for the heritage sector, National Trust English Heritage and Stately Homes. We also work for the TV, uh, uh, mostly docudramas supplying them stuff. But 
what's interesting, we uh, we have quite a lot of, it's a strange thing to have, but we got in quite a lot of uh, different types of Second World War guns because a lot of museums were struggling to get young men and teen teenage boys interested. And of course, they were busy playing Call of Duty on, the, on their computers. And they knew, but they never actually held, you know, like a Tommy gun or a Sten gun or anything like that. So we've had museums book us just to come in with those. And they get a lot of teenage boys and young men coming in to kind of handle the real thing. And I know it's arms and weapons, which aren't my thing complete, really. But it's interesting how they all that digital stuff that they do and yet they still want to get their hands on the real thing i mean simulations are getting scarily real now they're talking about virtual reality they're talking about haptic suits that can give you feedback and and so it's it's almost simulating the real thing but i guess nothing nothing like getting your hands on it is there? that exactly yeah that physical object that thing that's come from history yeah exactly well, that's that's a fascinating ride, and I'd love to to close out with um, you know any funny stories that you have that, that has happened to you. Uh, if you can pick one or two and sort of send us off with a few happy memories, that would be great. Well, as I said, we work with every age group, right down to reception in year one. We have very simple things that we do. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago I was at a school, and a little boy, he was a reception child. He was really, they were all really excited. And he didn't want to leave the hall. He was enjoying himself so much. He was sitting on the floor and he lost control of himself, Paul. And a big puddle appeared around him and he was whisked off by one of the teachers, you know, muttering under her breath. But, you know, I took it as the ultimate compliment that he, that he was so excited by what we were doing that he wet himself. So there you go. I'm sure as I get older, it'll happen to me too. <laughs> You're going to need hands-on history diapers. That's your next vertical to explore. It could be. It could be. It's interesting talking about that. Um, I'm, this afternoon, going off to a, 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 a residential old people's home to go uh, talk to them about the Second World War. And we're going to do, take along a lot of the kit. And, and I will talk a lot of it. We'll be talking about what we do in the schools with the children because they really enjoy that. But also they really enjoy seeing stuff, a lot of them, from when they were children. That's amazing. And it, this is such a great business. It's such a great business idea. It has so many applications. And uh, it just seems to me like it, there should just be more time <laughs> if there could be more time. But of course, there isn't. So, yeah, especially um, as I started this as a semi-retirement business and it's now grown and grown and grown. Yes. Well, I think you've, you've done well. And, and thanks for coming on uh, and creating Pleasure. an episode about what you do. Thank you very Pleasure. much. Thanks a lot, then. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. Uh, if you like what you hear, you can dive into a lot more on thesparkhub.com.